Okay, so welcome back to another episode of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is um, episode 107, and uh, my guest expert today um, is Dr. Shona Halson, and um, we, <laughs> we were just talking about the last time we did a podcast, which was miraculously two years ago, which was episode 92 recovery and um, performance. But that said, um, welcome back, Shona. No, thanks. Thanks for having me back. No, it's, it, it's great um, to have you back. I mean, back then we talked about recovery and performance, um, which is not going to be entirely different from some of what we're going to talk about today. But recently, um, you had a, a, a paper published um, with Louise Burke and Jeannie Pierce, which um, was titled Nutrition for Travel from Jet Lag to Catering. And when I read that paper, it struck such a chord with me because um, over the years, I've, I've worked with various teams and individual athletes, but most notably, um, I worked with Egypt at the World Cup. Um, and that their main reason for contracting me was because their principal issue was, you know, Ramadan was right up until the first game when we were in Russia. But of course, when you're working with a national team at an event like the World Cup or the Olympics or whatever, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on for, for many months before that, which includes traveling around uh, to camps, um, you know, uh, friendly games, um, but inevitably, that involves huge amounts of travel. And um, uh, although we didn't do particularly well um, at the World Cup, one of the things that um, we can cl have a claim to fame was, was the most traveled team. Um, and we had an obscene amount of travel. It was something like 17 flights in six weeks. And we stayed, wow. I mean, it was mad in all sorts of places from, um, you know, obviously Cairo, but we were in Kuwait. Uh, two weeks in, in Italy, we were in Belgium, um, Russia, but popping in and out of, of Russia during the World Cup um, with flights that were like three hours, we didn't stay nearby, all the different hotels, changes of time zones. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it was just manic. So I think that this podcast that we're going to do is going to be particularly important um, because as I was just saying off air here by way of, of sort of, you know, uh, why I wanted to get into this is in sports nutrition, performance nutrition, we get obsessed with, with rocket science. Uh, we, you know, everyone, you know, there's popular topics now like energy availability, for example, I've just recorded a podcast with Kirsty sale all about nutritional considerations for female athletes, which was fascinating yeah. looking at the implications for hormones at different, sort of, you know, times of the month, times of the year, um, implications for reds, obviously. Um, there's obsession over protein and, you know, are we hitting those leucine thresholds and, you know, triggering all the molecular signaling and so on. But <clears throat> I still feel that we need to spend more time and effort on just the real world practical stuff like travel, yeah. um, mm -hmm. you know, athletes in hotels and so on. So, um, I know you've, you've changed institutions and so on since um, we last spoke. So perhaps you could just remind us about who you are, where you are, and, and your main areas of research, and then segue that into you know, what, why this paper uh, came about, and then we'll get into it. 
Yeah, sure. So, yes, um, since we last spoke two years ago, I can't believe that, mm. um, I've changed to Australian Catholic University. So I'm in the School of Behavioural and Health Sciences there. Um, I have a predominantly research role, a little bit of teaching in their master's course, but uh, predominantly research and just continuing a lot of the work that I uh, did in the previous years um, at the Institute of Sport, which was really around recovery and sleep uh, and did a, a reasonable amount of research uh, research and, um, and practical work in the area of, of travel as well, given that uh, Australia is a long way away from everywhere else. Um, and especially when it came to, to Rio, yes, that's right. Domestic travel's big. It's like the it's like travelling in the States uh, mm. from east to west coast. Um, and then uh, we obviously had preparations for Rio. So we had some real challenges there in terms of um, it was travelling eastwards to get to Rio. It was the other side, exactly around the other side of the world uh, and then add to that uh, in particular the sport that I was working with at the time which was swimming were having you know finals that were um, late at night um, to accommodate for US TV so we'd spend a fair bit of time looking at different travel uh, travel strategies um, as well as looking at just general uh, research into into sleep as well so obviously they they tie together so um, this paper came as an invitation from Louise Burke um, and obviously you don't say no to Louise Burke when she asks if you would like to collaborate with her on a paper it was a special um, edition of um, International Journal of Sport, Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism, and it was targeted um, towards um, track and field. So it was an IAAF sort of special. Uh, however, most of the um, most of the um, the papers in there are really you know relevant to to lots of different um, lots of different sports. So this one was really sort of combining um, the three of us, so myself, Louise, and Jenny Pierce, um, and I took a lead on the travel, jet lag, sleep aspect uh and louise and jenny really as the you know the the queens of traveling dietitians around the world uh really put together some of the you know the practical stuff the and then the tables at the end of the paper talk about a range of things to look at to think of to prepare um you know during travel you know when you're competing when you're in hotels when you're you know on the other side of the world and i think that's the nice thing about this paper is you get the experience of um of both of those ladies where, as you say, you know, there's plenty of science out there, but this is the real world stuff. And when you get to uh, maybe a country like Rio where you can't drink the water and there's certain foods that you wouldn't eat, we had very similar experiences in preparing for Beijing um, 2008. So lots of lessons learnt that um, hopefully have been described in the paper fairly simply. Uh, and as you say, we've got all the, we've got all the, um, the rocket science, but um, just going to a country where you can't eat the lettuce... Um, um, and there's foods that athletes won't eat uh, and they're jet lagged and they're hungry at different times. Uh, you know, sometimes all the science that you have in the world can give you the guidelines, but uh, really you've got to kind of figure things out for yourself. And I think this paper um, provides um, a shortcut to figuring out things for yourself because there's lots of good practical tips in there. Yeah, no, I, I just from my own experiences, I thought it was bang on. In fact, the, 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 as I said, I wish I had read this paper <laughs> before <laughs> I found myself literally in the trenches trying to work some of this stuff out. And um, yeah. for the listeners that are, you know, current or a spot or current early career nutritionist, sports nutritionist or, or aspiring nutritionist, I would urge them to think about the practicalities of 
of of what they're thinking of doing with with their athletes in the real world and um i had this sort of epistemological statement which is you can but should you um because it is dangerous at times i think for practitioners to get a little bit over enthusiastic with their sports nutrition sort of protocols at the expense of the implementation Mm -hmm. and boy is it complicated when you look at i mean let's just let's just look at the before we get into all the different strategies the evidence-based strategies because that's Mm -hmm. the other thing is there are so many things that you could do that are out there and if we start thinking you know the whole sort of marginal gains sort of mindset of well let's change the pillowcases and so i mean there are there Mm -hmm. are so many things that you could do but it is important to focus on where the evidence is suggesting is going to be the biggest sort of bang for your buck because face it you know the danger in in being a sports nutritionist is sometimes we forget that our athletes are doing other things not just sports nutrition you know they've got to train they've got they've got meetings you know they might have to watch Mm -hmm. like some of the things i learned out in the world cup where you know they do have to spend time observing the other teams and learning about the strategies Mm. that the other you know the other uh, teams might be up to there's i mean there's just so much there um not to mention being away from home and family spending time in alien environments changes of you know radical changes from your own cultures and so on um but also you know what what even is a team some there are teams that spend all year round together like your sort of Mm -hmm. home um you know your standard sort of league clubs and teams but then you've got your national teams and squads where they come together for these big events but they spend most of their time away from each other so of course there's sort of relationships and all sorts of stuff but just 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 so you can expand on that i mean just so we can contextualize what we mean by by travel i mean just just how big an how big an issue is this um which mm. I mean is huge, obviously. But I mean, what you know, g- give us some ideas about why why is this important for performance nutritionists to even want to spend some time on? Yeah, look, I think that uh, I think on one hand, uh, I think especially well, I mean, my experience is really in Australian athletes, but athletes often get reasonably good at traveling the more you know, you know what it's like you, you've traveled a lot and you kind of get better at it you mm. understand what strategies kind of work for you and one of the things we were really careful about in uh, in preparing for Rio was not to overly stress the athletes because yes there are some things that you can do about jet lag there's things that you can do in terms of managing the managing it the best you can um, but having the athlete stressed and anxious about travel is certainly not going to help when it comes to sleep so letting them know that we have we've done the best that we can to help mitigate um, the negative effects um, but without sort of overly stressing them so there's that kind of side to it in terms of with the athletes not making a big deal out of it, but with the staff and the coaches, yes, okay, let's make a big deal out of this and let's figure out our strategies so that we can give um, the athletes the best opportunities that we can. And I think, you know, for us, again, I'll probably talk a little bit about Rio because it's pretty much the worst travel that you can do um, from from anywhere Um, it's, it's pretty, pretty major. And, and, you know, we know that, you know, in traveling to Rio in advance we hadn't done a lot of it it was a fairly foreign travel for Australians to travel to South America for any kind of 
any kind of competition. So there was not a lot known about the country. Uh, we knew that there was risk of um, illness um, and there was a, a big deal made about the Zika virus. Um, we didn't know potentially, we, we know the Olympic Village is going to have, you know, Spotless is going to put on, you know, pretty good food in terms of the, you know, the Olympic Village, but you still don't really know what you're going to get, um, especially those that are travelling there in advance. Um, in terms of the jet lag, um, it's, as I said, you know, pretty significant. So when do we get there? Um, how long in, in advance do we do we get there so that they're in the right time, so the athletes are in the right time zone and feeling good? So I think that um, travel can be, uh, can have a major performance effect on people. I mean, one, if they get sick, obviously, big deal. Um, two, if they're considerably jet lagged and they have um, poor night sleep, uh, uh, over a period of time. So, you know, one bad night's sleep or two bad nights, you know, you can kind of cope with it. But if you've right. got three or four or five nights of bad sleep living it, leading into an Olympic Games where we know that living in an Olympic village in itself is um, a stressful situation for many people it's it's unique and it can cause a little bit of anxiety putting all these people together at the biggest show on earth all all in in the one place so there's mm. lots of things that can go wrong um, and I think preparing as best you can just minimizes the chances of of those things so um, I think that yes travel if you really mess it up uh, can have significant impacts on performance. And we've all heard of athletes who've been sick leading um, from whatever reason. We know that travel itself can make you sick. One of the um, studies that we were involved in in the lead-up to Rio was um, with the AAS, which I'm still um, involved with, is a stay healthy study where we just looked at how do we we just want, you know, we spend a lot of time on the one percenters, but what we want is our athletes to be not sick and not injured. Um, that We want them to be consistently training and being able to perform on the day. And so what are the strategies that we can use to try and prevent illness as much as we can while we're traveling? So minimizing excessive travel is important, you know, hand washing um you know using hand sanitizer is uh, you know just the simple things um that can really help prevent um some of those illnesses so um i think it's a big enough deal that we need to be um be very cautious about um our travel itineraries the amount we travel and what we do when we arrive depending on the country that you're going to obviously you know there's mm. somewhere there's there's less risks than others but I uh, definitely think that, um, you know, working with someone like Louise, who's very experienced in terms of travelling as a travelling dietitian, um, you know, you know you're in pretty good hands and you're going to have as many things, many bases covered as you possibly can. Yeah, well, it, it's funny you should mention that. Actually, that was one, one thing that I felt was important is, you know, you're, you're there for a reason. You've been, you're part of the team um, and by that, I mean, literally part of the team. Mm. Um, and there's a confidence that they will gain from your confidence and expertise. And that does play a role, actually, um, yeah. Yeah. which I think is important. But the repercussions of this, of not really understanding this can be huge as well, because, of course, there's mm. it's not just a case of, well, let's just keep them healthy. You know, I mean, as, as we both know, that's mm very difficult thing to do and some mm -hmm. of that's out of your control yes. a lot of this is damage limitation and so on but mm -hmm. um the sheer the sheer impact that these strategies can have on the bigger picture literally just the timing of meals not not having meals available when you arrive at the hotel or having the wrong mm -hmm. food on the flights 
the impact yep. psychologically and physiologically. You know, yeah, we could talk about, oh, well, you know, have we, have we replaced all the glycogen and all that? Yeah, but, mm-hmm. you know, the psychological impact of this yes. stuff can be massive yes. and people start to have serious anxiety. <laughs> yeah, um, yes. And like, happen. exactly. And like, you know, for example, uh, having traveled to um, some of these destinations in advance, you can come back and you can say, okay, we know where the nearest shop is that has good food. We know where you can get good gluten-free food. Um, we know, you know, you can organize meals to come in advance to cater for different tastes. You know, if you've got a person who's traveling to, um, to Japan and, you know, there's only, you know, you don't get your pastas or, your, you know, some of your traditional, you know, uh, meals a lot of the athletes like be, being prepared so they know, yes, okay, you've got this option. Uh, being prepared for, uh, say, at the you get a drug test and you're stuck at the pool or the track for hours afterwards and you've got no food. Yeah. Um, so, you know, all those types of things where just having sent someone in advance who comes back with some information, and again, you're exactly right, the comfort that the athlete has to know that people have checked this out. We've got good people. I know I'm comfortable to eat that meal. I'm fairly confident I'm not going to get sick. Um, yeah. People have planned this um, and I think that that psychological confidence is is really important. Yeah. So like sometimes I felt like uh, I, I had to be uh, sort of the the proverbial canary in the mine or the king's jester. <laughs> yes. Actually, yeah. Oh, I better taste this stuff before yeah, the players do. Think about first. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. If you're okay, then they'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Let's let's get a bit sciencey about stuff then. So mm-hmm. look, we know that travel, particularly nowadays, it's, it's it's 2019 travel is 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 a big part of being an athlete whether you're you know an olympic athlete um mm-hmm. you know working in um athletics in general professional rugby professional football slightly more individualized sports or squad sports like fencing tennis i mean mm-hmm. even in even in just within one week you might be very likely to find yourself in in more than one country um and actually what what i did find was you know after a few months of some serious traveling you kind of get used to it all um it was that initial impact um so i'm also thinking even you know even people who don't do a whole lot of traveling um the the impact of of not getting this right on that one-off trip could be potentially really hazardous um so it doesn't matter really who who's listening to this at some point travel will be involved um so um i think the the first area that one thinks of um in in traveling and i don't mean necessarily for athletes i mean just for anyone is this whole thing of jet lag i mean yes dreaded jet lag lag, what, what does that term even mean what what actually is jet lag and what are the implications of that for an athlete yeah, so essentially jet lag is, you know, technically is a circadian desynchronization. So there's a mismatch between your the body's circadian rhythm and the external light-dark cycle. So we know that light um, is stimulatory to the body clock and what tells us to be awake. And we know that darkness is what sort of tells us um, that, it's, that it's time for sleep. So when you travel rapidly, which we can do now with, um, with pl- airplane travel, is you can cross many time zones in a very short period of time um, and therefore don't have the time to adjust. Um, you, you don't arrive in a new destination adjusted because you've changed so many time zones in a very quick period of time. 
Um, so essentially, it's just your body think your body is used to being in uh, one country, um, and all of a sudden, very quickly, you're in another country many time zones um, away. So it's this desynchronization, and of course, you know, there's lots of physiological things that happen um, that are triggered by our body clock. So we have hormones that are released at certain times of the day. We have appetite at different times of the day. We have a range of different things that occurs. Um, that are supposed to occur during the day and things that are supposed to occur during night. And all of a sudden, you know, they can change. So one of the things that um, a lot of people experience and, and that we know is um, generally um, your um, urine volume decreases at night um, because the idea is that, um, you know, hopefully you can get some good sleep. And the idea is that, uh, you know, when you're going to the bathroom, it's during the day. But when you cross time zones and what happens if you're rapidly crossing time zones is a lot of people experience it. You're getting up all the time at night to go to the bathroom because um, your body clock's telling you it's during the day. Um, so even little things like that um, can be something that can disturb your sleep. Uh, even if your sleep's not already disturbed, um, then you have can have other issues as well. So it's this. It's essentially this just rapid change of um, change of time zones and the body not sort of uh, able to catch up as quickly as as, sure. as you would like. Sure, uh, you know, and, and over the years, obviously. Well, I say obviously, I'm not sure if everyone knows this, but I mean, there is a lot of research in this in the wider mm. sort of health and medical area because of the implications of, of jet lag and sleep disturbance yep. and, and so on. Mm -hmm. There's a fair amount of, of, of really decent research out there. And of course, when you start delving into it, there's a fair amount of sort of, you know, endocrinology and, you know, mm -hmm. overall the physiological impact of this, which you've explored bits of in, in your paper, which I think is of mm -hmm. particular interest. Like for example, there are, there are, there are specific things that you call zeitgebers or I don't even know mm -hmm. if I pronounced that right. I love yep. that word. Yep. Yeah, it's great. Good um, German word. <laughs> yeah. Like zeitgeist, isn't it? Um, yes. Which, which, which are these these particular stimulants, if you like, that um, have positive or negative interactions with, with this body clock mm -hmm. sort of mm -hmm. system. Perhaps you could just quickly talk about that because you mentioned about the, the body clock, which we all yes. inherently know. I mean, there are people who wake up without an alarm clock every morning. I'm one of those people. I will wake up at the same mm -hmm. time, although my children mm -hmm. have destroyed my alarm clock. Cause problems, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> but um, perhaps we could just talk about that quickly. Yeah. So essentially there's certain cues that um, you can use um, or that are used in the environment to help um, synchronize this internal body clock um, to the external environment. And light is the biggest one. Light is the most powerful manipulator of the body clock. Um, so um, brief summary is the body clock is essentially called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. nucleus. Um, it's in the brain. Um, the light stimulates the body clock through the eyes um, and nerve transmits that um, signal to the body clock. So light essentially says, okay, it's daytime. And when it gets dark, that essentially says, okay, we're not having as much light. Let's release some melatonin and make us feel sleepy. So that's why when you travel to Europe in summer and it's light, you know, you have like 20 
two hours of light. Um, that's why I, I don't know. I know when I travel to Northern Europe, I don't feel tired at all. I can, I just, all that light uh, just makes me feel super awake for long periods of time. And um, mm. when it's dark, um, when you go to Europe and it's dark, I find, you know, and we talk about seasonal affective disorder. So the, you know, the environment and, and the light provides really powerful cues to connect you um, to the external environment. And so when you cross into a new time zone, it's one of the things that you can really use is light um, to get to your body clock back into sync. And I think one of the things that a lot of people, they all say, I'll go for a walk in the morning and get some bright light. Unfortunately, it's not as simple as that. It may be depending on the direction you've traveled or the number of time zones you've crossed, you may actually need light in the morning or light in the evening. Um, so it just depends which way you want to shift your body clock. Um, and I, some people do take melatonin, uh, but ultimately light influences your melatonin. So you can use light as a very safe and effective means of adjusting to the um, to the new time zone. Of course, the issue being, um, depending on what sport you're doing and where you are and what facilities you have, you know, it's all very well to say avoid bright light in the morning and you're out rowing in Europe on um, in Italy somewhere and you've got beautiful bright sunlight um, straight onto the body clock. So, yeah. uh, yes, we can have strategies and things in place, but always got to factor in the practicalities of how that might actually work. Yeah, I, um, <clears throat> it's, again, it's been a few years, um, but in, on episode 52, I did a podcast with John Bartlett, mm, uh, yes. yep. who's um, <clears throat> a Brit down under, isn't he? I think he's yes, just, there, isn't he? Yeah. Yes, he is, just down the road from me. There yep. you go, there you go. <laughs> um, and that episode 52 is all about sleep and performance mm -hmm. and recovery, mm -hmm. and I highly recommend um, listeners, I must get John back on and do a follow-up because that was in 2015. I just can't believe it. Um, <clears throat> but um, I know, I know, with the athletes I've travelled with, sleep hygiene has been particularly important and effective. Mm -hmm. um, so we won't we won't get too much into that um, in this because we want to focus a bit more on nutrition. But you mentioned uh, melatonin, Shona. So yes, you know um, that has over the years been a popularised. Uh, strategy with mm -hmm. I'm guessing million dollar or if not more than that industry behind melatonin mm -hmm. supplements uh, particularly in the states excuse me yes um, what I mean why is melatonin of interest here and and you know what, what for an evidence-based performance nutritionist you mm -hmm. know why should or shouldn't we consider that as part of our toolbox yeah so melatonin is uh associated with the initiation of sleep. Um, so generally what happens is um, melatonin uh, rises and uh, sleep is initiated beyond that point. So it really is associated with the, the, um, the time uh, of falling asleep. So it really sort of sets that timing um, for sleep. So it becomes really important. Now, uh, as we were saying earlier, when your body's on a circadian rhythm and it's used to releasing melatonin at a certain time and not at others, when you're in a, uh, a new time zone, you might want to take some melatonin to help trigger that onset of sleep. Now, one of the real challenges around the use of melatonin, well, there's a couple. Um, one of the challenges is, generally speaking, melatonin should be provided at um, different points around your core body temperature minimum depending on direction of travel, et cetera, et cetera. And that's one thing that we don't know when we're traveling. We don't know when your core body temperature minimum actually is. So there's a chance 
that you can send your body clock in the direction that you don't want it if you're taking melatonin at the wrong times. So for example, if you were to wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh, I need something to help me go back to sleep, melatonin is probably not um, the substance of choice. Uh, it's something that a lot of people will use in the hour before you go to bed. Doses of around two to eight milligrams has been shown in reviews to be effective. I think we just have to be a little bit careful about not using it as a as a sleep aid, as a sleeping tablet, more as we've got to th keep, make sure we're thinking about it um, in terms of shifting our body clock. Yeah. Um, I, uh, sorry, sorry. Sorry, far away. No, I, the, the, the reason why I, I was butting in basically was, um, you know, I, again, that's something I have found that has been in, uh, in, in athletes' bags from time to time. Mm. Um, you know, we hit, we, it is difficult for us to control the knowledge that that our athletes get and of course this is one mm -hmm. thing that you know absolutely anybody will be oh you know you should take jet lag or you know i use it for business mm -hmm. or, or whatever mm -hmm. but um I, I think like you say the implications of it are potentially problematic um but the appeal of it obviously like in so many areas of of nutrition is the supplement side of it is that mm -hmm. is that perception of a quick fix right i'm going to take a pill boom mm -hmm. It's yes. going to work. And I guess that's one area that we, we have to work hard on education um, yes. of our athletes because they're assuming, oh, I'll just take melatonin because the, the, the myth, the, the legend that is <laughs> melatonin is a hard legend to fight against when, like you say, things like exposure to light is far more important and potentially the impact of digital devices and, mm -hmm. and so on which of course athletes depend on when they travel to to either distract themselves or of course they're fairly young athletes usually so it's computer games or you know talking to friends family partners yeah. you know boyfriends mm -hmm. girlfriends and so on these are all much more important obviously um yes. Um, but let, let, let's, let's just, we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, although I did get into that with John Bartlett in episode mm. two, cause it, it's a major factor with sleep. Um, the big one, caffeine. Caffeine. Yes. Now <laughs> caffeine, something we all use. I've just been drinking mm -hmm. caffeine, um, my, mm -hmm. my drug of choice. Um, but it is also an important part of the performance nutritionists, uh, toolbox for, uh, performance. Um, so this is going to be a difficult one, isn't it? Because we're thinking, yep, you know, I'm going to take it, you know, before a game or a match, I might use mm -hmm. it as a halftime strategy, for example. Um, but the broader implications of that are, well, is it going to have an impact on, on, on this bigger topic that we're getting into? So what, you know, what, why did you choose, um, um, you know, why did you choose to focus on caffeine as, as one of the things here in your paper? Yeah. So you're right, it's, it's complex. I think that people use caffeine, not just daily to get through the day, but especially when they travel. And I'm, I'm sure everyone who's ever had jet lag, you know, a cup of coffee might help you get through the next few hours. And, you know, caffeine can be really good for helping get into the new time zone if you use it at the right times. So, you know, we encourage people uh, to try and push through the first day and go to bed, you know, maybe a little bit earlier than normal, but 
trying to go to bed at, at night time rather than having a big nap during the day if you arrive early in the morning. And caffeine, you know, you can use that to help you stay awake. Um, so it can be used positively in terms of a, a jet lag perspective. The problems are obviously what you're referring to is, you know, using caffeine too close to, um, to bedtime, um, which can um, interfere with your ability to sleep. The way I look at it with caffeine, I sort of have two approaches. And one is I believe that if ca- we know that caffeine can be an, a performance enhancer, um, if we, if you, the athlete uh, knows, you know, what they're doing and how much caffeine they should be having uh, and they need, and they use it for performance. I think, you know, that's to me, performance is still the key. doesn't matter if you're the best sleeping team in the world, but you're not winning. Um, you know, you want to be um, using your, your caffeine strategically. So if you feel like you need caffeine to enhance your performance, then, then go for it where we're a little bit cautious is saying okay are there times you can get away without having caffeine so if you're in a swim meet and you've got six nights in a row and you've got a couple of easy swims early on maybe not take caffeine if you think that's going to influence your ability to sleep save it for when you really need it Um, and second of all making sure that um, the athletes are well educated around the doses, um, which I'm sure you're fully, um, you've fully seen it multiple times. A lot of athletes, you know, a little bit is good, a lot is better, and they can take too much caffeine in terms of what they actually need, and then that will have um, certainly have ramifications on sleep. And then what happens is the next day they'll have more caffeine because they haven't slept well, and it turns into a into a vicious cycle. So I think strategic use of caffeine potentially when jet lagged to get you through the day uh, and then strategic use for performance, but keeping it within, you know, acceptable limits in terms of not influencing their, not influencing too negatively their ability to sleep that night. Yeah. It's complicated, isn't it? I mean, Mm. I, 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 by the traditional sense of the word athlete, I wouldn't describe myself as an athlete, but I'm pretty active, but uh, I don't drink, caffeine i don't take caffeine for performance i just love caffeine i mean I'm, yes. I'm, <laughs> Tastes good. I'm french basically so i i grew up yeah. with caffeine before I even yeah. you know breathed air mm-hmm. um we won't talk about wine but that's another subject but the, oh yes not good for sleep but, um, but good for the taste so I, I again just just because it was such a big influence on how i now look at, at practices again at the world cup with the egyptians you know coffee coffee is part of their culture and mm, yes it's, good it's, egyptian coffee it, yep. yeah and um God, strong stuff Woo. strong yeah it's like you can stand a spoon up in it can't you <laughs> the, uh, yeah. the, the airplane uh, didn't need fuel to, to get off the ground it just took a cup of egyptian coffee <laughs> uh the uh, uh the issue there is that that's a social thing so mm. they're not sitting around, um, you know, like we might be, yeah, let's get a couple of beers. You know, they don't drink. Um, mm. most of them, they don't drink alcohol, coffee, massive. Mm-hmm. You, yes. There are multiple sides to this. And I think it's worth mentioning that, that whilst we need to be careful, we want to maybe dissuade people from taking these things. Um, the, the bigger picture might also be their quality of life. Um, yeah. which is a, 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 a sort of a, the other side of the coin that I think is mm-hmm. worth thinking about because, of course, athletes aren't just athletes. They may also be from very, very differing cultural backgrounds. backgrounds. Um, but For caffeine sure. is is fascinating. And I, um, I did a podcast. That was the one that I did before your last <laughs> 
episode um, with Ben Desbrow. Oh, episode yes. Episode 91, February 2017. Listen to me reference all this. Um, um, and that was about caffeine and sports performance, um, which was fascinating topic. You know, there's so much to caffeine. Um, so it's worth getting in, into that. Now, mm. Shona, um, I think the area that I found of particular fascination was the concept of meal timing. Hmm. Um, um, and I've certainly read some interesting research about this and how it can impact, um, you know, things like the body clock and, and so on. Um, and for different reasons, there's an obsession with meal timing or nutrient timing in sports nutrition, which is sort of starting to go out of vogue again. Um, but... Um, um, why, why is meal timing of relevance here to the traveling athlete and, and, and this uh, concept of the clock that you talk about? Yeah, so potentially the timing of meals is another way to synchronize with that, um, uh, with that body clock again. Um, and we know that we have peripheral clocks um, and we know that you know, feeding and fasting can influence um, these clocks that are in the periphery. So... There's a little bit of research in rats, which you may have seen looking at, um, you know, in particular areas such as the clock, the liver clock, um, which is very sensitive to timing and, and composition of food. The issue that we have at the moment with the this area around meal timing is there's almost no research in humans in terms of timing of of meals and jet lag. People have tried lots of things and you'll often see, you know, airlines are introducing different types of, of meals. Um, so there's not only the timing of the meal, but the composition of the meal that, that can mm. influence um, uh, these, these um, peripheral clocks. So I think we're at the early days, very early days in, in this area. And there's, there's potential for um, this influence on the, on the body clock, but um, we're really, really, um, don't have a lot of good consistent data because it's just it's just not out there. And there's, there's the one study in the military looking at alternating days of high protein and low carbohydrate and some fasting and feeding cycles. But uh, yeah, really very, very little research out there. But I do think there's potential. And people will often talk about having their own strategies that they like. I know a lot of people that don't even want to eat on planes at all. Yes. Um, and then they find that that fasting really helps and, and, and particularly eating in the new time zone. Even if you may or may not feel like eating, you may not be hungry because you may be, you know, your, your, your sensations of hunger may be different because you're in the different time zone. But setting your meals and providing that consistency of routine in the new time zone um, can potentially help. And it's a strategy that a lot of people use. Yeah, and of course, we're, I mean, our conversation is generalized, isn't it? I mean, there's... Yeah there's obviously individualized, um, you know, variations on, on, on all of this, but we're trying to be as evidence-based yep. as possible. Um, um, so, um, well, actually speaking of evidence-based, the, the, you know, the, the, these, some of these things that we're talking about relative to light exposure, I mean, light is, is by far, Far the biggest Far. one though, isn't yes. it? Yeah, so yeah exactly. Nail yeah. that one above everything else. Yes, exactly. And sunlight in particular, much, much more powerful than, you know, even bright fluorescent lights and, and yeah. you know, the phones can be an issue, but sunlight is sunlight is where it's at. Yeah. So um 
you mentioned a bit earlier about the impact of travel itself. Um, you know, I think, mm-hmm. I think a lot of us, you know, the, the irony of going on holiday for not long enough, you know, you, you go sort yes. of on a, a five to seven day holiday and you feel at the end of that trip that now you need a holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to go for at least two weeks or whatever sort of concept. Um, that, that's also important because you may not necessarily have control over what time you get to arrive, you know, relative to when you have to perform, but travel mm-hmm. fatigue, um, is something that I, th- that you focused on in the paper, which is something that should be considered. What, you know, what, 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 you know, what is travel fatigue as best as you can describe it and how does that relate to the nutrition side of things? Yeah. So the way I sort of think of travel fatigue is an example. So when in Australia, if we travel up to Japan, say in preparation of say Tokyo, we've only got maybe a one or two hour time zone shift, depending on where you are. It might be a 10 hour flight, but it's only a one or two hour time shift. So what our athletes would experience in that situation is more travel fatigue rather than jet lag. Uh, and the travel fatigue is just a consequence of being in a cooped up, sitting in a usually economy seat um, for you know reasonably long periods of time. Um, but then you have the issues around travel fatigue that you experience, you know, maybe once. Uh, but then what happens when you're traveling multiple, multiple times during a season? And a lot of people will say that travel fatigue changes towards the end of a season when you've done lots and lots and lots of lots of trips. So, um, and, you know, travel fatigue, you can obviously tiredness is is one of them um exposure to uh, you're often not sleeping as well so and we know that poor sleep is associated with increased risk of illness as well um, we know that planes are dirty environments um and so are airports um in general and so you know making sure you're using your hand sanitizer and all those kinds of things um but it and, and often another thing that i've noticed with a lot of athletes um well, a couple of things. One, we often don't want to pay for an extra night accommodation. So we'll send people on the very, very early morning flight. Um, so they're already starting sleep deprived, uh, which is, again, not good for the immune system. And secondly, a lot of athletes are not overly organized. Um, and so they might really? find themselves packing. <laughs> I mean, oh, gosh, I'm sure you know all about it. But, you know, they're packing at midnight and they're doing all these last minute things. And then we get them up at 4.30 to get on the 7 o'clock flight and they're starting out already very sleep deprived then you know when you get to the first year hotel they call it a first night effect most people don't sleep well in a hotel on the first night it's a foreign environment um so you've got all these things that happen in terms of having poor sleep maybe you're sharing a room when you're not used to sharing a room um and if you keep repeating that over and over and over throughout a season then that can definitely increase your risk of 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 illness and just general fatigue yeah yeah, you, you mentioned travel hygiene, which I'll come to in a second. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's worth just mentioning, although these things are discussed in isolation, the, 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 there is an accumulative and additive effect that's worth consider, considering. I mean, what, what would you say about, about that? Yeah, definitely. I think it's the, you know, and I'm sure everyone who does a lot of a lot of travel has experienced it. You know, you can do one flight and come home and feel, you know, reasonably good. But then two weeks later, you're on another plane to Europe or America and then you come back and you're on another one. And it is, it's that accumulation. And, you you, uh, you know, and plus the psychology of uh, a lot of travel can be, as you were saying, time away from, you know, friends and family, uh, then, you know, 
you also, especially if you're an athlete and you're competing and you've got stresses associated with competition and selection and, you know, all those kinds of things. So I think, yes, we, we really need to factor in how many trips are necessary. You know, competition is so important and, you know, we know that that's, you know, super important for the athletes, but how many do we, how many competitions do we really need to do to get the benefits without, you know, overexposing them to excessive travel? And that, again, actually, uh, just, again, drawing upon my own experiences has been why sometimes the, the, these things are necessary to know because those conversations you have with your colleagues will enable them to understand the, 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 the sort of the wider implications of, the, of this stuff. So you, you, you might be the dietitian, the nutritionist, you might not be involved in, in travel, but you can have some input that can influence the people that are organizing this. Um, yes. And I certainly, I've certainly found that to be important at, at times because when someone's sitting there, you know, booking flights for the squad and the team, and like you say, they're like, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's things called budgets, for example. Yes. And, and, uh, and, and when you're talking a whole team or squad, you know, these flights get pretty expensive mm -hmm. and airlines being airlines, they jack up prices at the last mm -hmm. minute, lots yes. of holidays and special events and so on. So, you know, they will naturally take the cheaper flights, which might be early morning, late mm -hmm. nights and so on. And if, if they're not completely aware of uh, the implications that could have on why we're even sending the athlete to these destinations. And yeah. um, these conversations are worth having, even if it's just sitting down, having lunch, you know, or whatever with your colleagues. Um, mm. Awareness of, of this knowledge is, is, is useful, um, you know, or, or give, them, give them a copy of your paper or get them to listen to this <laughs> podcast, you know. Um, so, yes. Shana, uh, travel hygiene you, you briefly just mm -hmm. mentioned it um th this one's huge i i guess this, this falls into the remit of all sorts of people including obviously the team doctor and so on but a lot of athletes don't have uh, you know necessarily a doctor sitting next to them mm -hmm. or, or whatever yeah. i mean what, what are the what, you know what, what's important about this travel hygiene because you said you know traveling's dirty um, yes. What can we do to mitigate that? But, but also, what are the consequences of not putting some effort into this? Yeah, look, and I think, you know, travel hygiene, you're right, it's so important. You know, it goes, ranges from, you know, vaccinations, which, you know, for certain countries is, you know, incredibly important, um, you know, all the way um, through to, you know, sitting in small areas and the, you know, planes relatively small, lots of people, lots of exposure to, um, to different potential pathogens on a plane um, in an Olympic village. Like, you know, if someone gets sick, it just like if someone has any kind of virus, you know, that can just spread so rapidly in these small confined areas. Um, so I think travel hygiene is, you know, is, is super important and, you know, just making sure things like, um, you know, vac vaccinations are up to date, educated about hygiene, educated about what, you know, can you drink the tap water? Can you not? What sorts of food can you eat? Um, what, what sorts of food, you know, can you not eat? You know, traveler's diarrhea is so common. Um, just depending <laughs> yeah. on, you know, what country you go to has all kinds of different issues. So I think that the gastrointestinal side is probably the most, in, one of the most important aspects to, um, to focus on and, you know, um, hand hygiene practices and what the yeah. water practices and standards of food are. Don't eat from, you know, just simple things. Don't eat from street 
you know, street vendors yeah. for a lot of countries, you know. Yeah, for what you brush your teeth with as well. That's yes, that's right. Ta bottled yeah. water. And, you know, we have yeah. to, when we travel with the, uh, you know, the Olympic team in particular to some, to you know, to Beijing and Rio, not want to pick on these countries, you know, but there were definitely <laughs> challenges um, that we don't see in Australia. So, you know, it was education and simple dot points, easy to read, easy to understand, steer clear of these certain practices um so yeah. putting the these there's you know we can know the information but we've got to get that information across to the athletes um so that they understand what they're you know what they're really dealing with and we need to give it to them in a way that they actually understand the gravity because a lot of them won't um, engage in something until they've experienced it it's like well no we don't want you to get traveler's diarrhea and, and have that experience we would like actually like you to learn from us and avoid um those particular hazards so um yeah. education super important yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can see the uh, various travel um, travel boards of these countries petitioning for you to be banned from... Uh, <laughs> Rio's a beautiful country, Rio's. beautiful beaches. <laughs> yeah, just watch it on TV. <laughs> yeah, I'll say, we, 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 you can order a postcard online. Um, yes, no, it is important, of course, and uh, that is why some athletes um, will choose to eat certain foods i remember all that stuff about people like you saying bolt you know all he eats is chicken nuggets but actually the reality was in the olympic village that that had something to do i believe with minimizing the risk of eating contaminated food um yes. i'm not saying he necessarily eats the best diet all of the time but, mm -hmm. but i'm sure yeah. he eats better than 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 uh, than he you know the, the the that whole thing that went about the whole chicken nuggets thing um yes. Yes. and that is true you know like you say in those environments there is food you don't know you just don't know it and trust no, I get yeah. trust trust is important mm. isn't it mm. um, yes you, you you know you've trained forever to compete at this event you know, you're not going to risk it by having, you know, a meal mm -hmm. from somewhere. So I guess we, we can minimize and mitigate that through travel strategies, which we can touch upon um, um, in a minute um, to, you know, to get around that. Um, so since yeah. I'm mentioning that, how about the, the, the catering side of things? Um, mm -hmm you know, in a new environment. Again, for me, it was, I mean, that was just a huge amount of my time was spent before yes. I'd even get to the various yes. hotels that we were staying at, um, was doing our absolute best to communicate with the hotel. And like mm -hmm. you say, you know, half the things that you want aren't available or they just don't tell you. So when you get there, they start saying, well, I'm sorry, we don't have all of these things. Oh, thanks very much for that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that is the challenge of foreign environments. I mean, you're some places, depending on the quality of the hotel you stay, as you know, you can um, get menus in advance and you can, if you travel there in advance, you can go, I'll pick up, I'll pick on another country. I'll pick on India because um, our team travels there for cricket quite a bit. Um, and many holidays, <laughs> Actually, India's on my list of places to go because uh, I would like to experience it. Hurry. But for example, <laughs> you know, there's some, there's some um, obviously amazing hotels there that yeah. the team stays in. You know, they don't stay in cheap hotels. Then they know the food is going to be fantastic because, mm. you know, they've got great chefs, um, five-star hotels. Um, but, you know, okay, 
you're going to be eating in that environment every night for however long you're there. You're not really going out to restaurants. You're not really going out to, um, you know, you're not eating some of the street food. So there's those kind of challenges out as well. But going in advance and having the dietitian have a look at the kitchen and see what they're cooking and the, and what their hygiene practices are um, is is you know certainly beneficial so i think yeah all those challenges around different um different environments and you know you might want to bring so for example you know with the olympics that often bring australia often ship over lots of bars you know uh you know muesli bars or fruit bars or whatever they are protein bars and you know they get eaten a lot because they're packaged and they know where they're you know they know where they're made and that they're they're, you know so they're safe yeah exactly and but you know sometimes if you travel long periods of time you've got a big team there's you know there's only so much stuff that you can ship to another country of your homegrown food um one of the things with the olympics is we always ship over vegemite now the rest of the world probably hates it but it's these little things from home one of those people shana (laughs) are you a marmite Marmite. man give me marmite not (laughs) yeah but these little things that are little treats from home are nice things to have yeah so um delving into this because this actually is a really interesting area um and you do mention um potential risks of contamination and i don't mean by bacteria or parasites i mean by potential banned substances so this has to be something we talk about because it is the big one you you know uh, for example um when you're at airports um some some athletes may have time to just roam around and do the usual stuff you know Mm. go buy a newspaper whatever Mm. and at some of the some of these airports will have um, you know, uh, places where you can buy, um, um, you know, pharmaceutical stuff for colds and yes. flus and so on. Yes. There's huge risks there because we know that whilst in one country, uh, a cold and flu remedy might be free of banned substances under the same brand name, but with different, different recipe in a different country might be a, a problem. Mm. And I think we're starting to cotton upon that, you know, through yes. wider over here with UCAD. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, people are getting reasonably savvy about this stuff, but food, so food, food, maybe less so what, you know, are there any risks with food and contamination that we should be concerned with when we travel? Yeah, I think, you know, some of the meats and the whole, you know, clenbuterol issues was, you know, something that was, you know, popular, uh, you know, a few years ago, but I mean, for me, um, you know, the, the risk is more around, as you say, the purchase of, say, melatonin, for example. So yeah. things that you can buy in what you'd call a, sort of call a health food shop. So, you know, they don't see it as drugs. They see it as, you know, as uh, this is from a health food shop. So, yeah. you know, it should be fine. Yeah. And um, I think that's where some of the issues are. So in Australia, you know, you can only get um, pharmacy-grade melatonin on prescription. And a lot of other countries are the same. Whereas in the US, you can just buy that over the, you know, from any pharmacy or any health food shop. So I think yeah. that's where they go, oh, I can actually get melatonin. And it says pharmacy grade here and it says all these things on it. And, um, you know, I think I quoted in the paper one, a, a paper that uh, came out of Canada that looked at 31, um, about 30 commercial melatonin products. And they found that there was anywhere between 18 to almost 500% of the labeled content of melatonin so you just don't know what you're getting and so exactly. you know i think it's that education yeah. around just steer clear in 
foreign countries. And even when you're taking your own medication, some medication that's you don't need a prescription for in Australia, you do need for in other countries. So yeah. it's always check, always check, always ask your doctor or ask someone in the know or check the WADA website. Yeah. Um, just you can't be too vigilant with those kinds of things. No, I agree. And, and um, that is something I've had to pay a lot of attention on with the traveling athletes. Uh, it is you know for example um protein bars um mm. you know uh caffeine shots energy shots um that sort of thing are more and more available even even in airports but also in destinations yes. Yes. um you know uh, again just because it's an experience you know at the world cup we, we we would be in all these different locations some of the hotels were in fairly remote environments near training camps, but they weren't really near the shops. But they would didn't happen often enough, I think. But we were actually released into into the real world for maybe a, mm-hmm. a, a day. Mm-hmm. Into let's you know we, we've we've been on camp for two weeks. We're all starting to pull our hair out. So let's go have a, yep. a walk around the local town or city. You know, oh, walk past a health food store. Let's go buy some supplements. Yeah. Um, yes. for my own personal stash and you've got no idea what you're getting because what of course, you're getting. Um, exactly. and we have to bear in mind you know and and athletes will do that they're like any anyone else they have their own interests and and so on and that is a risk of of traveling you know you have mm. less control i guess the more you travel the less control you less have control Yes. Yeah. And I really understand now, you know, a lot of, a lot of people um, in elite sport are just moving away from supplements, just getting, you know, going more towards, you know, just food. Um, And you can understand now with some of the issues around supplements, you know, there's some that we know are going to be safe and fine, but there's, there's certainly risks that you may not want to take with a large amount of the supplements. So just eating good, healthy, whole foods when you can get it is probably not a bad thing, right? (laughs) No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, that's what we're trying to do, isn't it? They're, they're, they're mm. traveling for a reason. They need to perform when they get there. Our ultimate remit as dietitians and nutritionists is we're just mm. trying to keep our athletes healthy. Yes, um, exactly. And that's the, the broader picture, which is obviously not mm. so simple as we've discussed, but yeah. I think the, yep. the risk is getting obsessed with the less important things at the expense of the most important things. Most, so so yeah. by way of summary, Shona, you know, what are the the few but really important areas then? Of all the things that we've talked about, mm-hmm. um, but what are the what are the big hitters then? Just to remind us that, that above all else, what are the things then that we yep. should be focused on? I think in advance of travel, it's looking at your. You know, if you have the luxury of choosing itineraries, you know, picking your picking your flights as good as you possibly can, arriving as um, you know with enough time to adjust to the to the destination. If you're travelling somewhere um, foreign where there may be some health concerns, having sending someone in advance or communicating in advance um, with hotels or wherever you're staying to find out as much as you can about the environment. When you are travelling, try to, you know, take care of yourself on the plane, make sure you're looking after your, your, your hygiene and your nutrition and your, um, your hydration on the flight. And then when you get there, when you get to the destination, make sure you're really careful, depending on where you go, about what you eat, when you eat, 
potentially what the composition of those meals are, sleeping at the right times and getting light exposure at the right times. Uh, and yeah, just being cautious of the types of um, types of foods that you might be eating in, in certain countries. And I think if you nail all those, uh, you'll certainly minimise your, your risk. But then finally, that after your one-off trip, really considering how much overall travel you really need to do to get the job done. Awesome. Thank you, Shona. I think we, we managed to um, cover most of, of, of this. It's obviously a big topic and ultimately it will be very much down to what's actually happening, you know, for that individual or for that squad mm. or team at that particular yes, point in time. Exactly. But, but mm. I think like anything, it's simply being aware of the possibilities and, and being able to sort of zone into, you know, the evidence base and focus on mm. what actually is important as you've, um, well yep. summarized there. So um, that, that's all we've got time for today. Um, I'd, I'd, you know, I'll link to on the website for this particular episode the, uh, the paper that we've been talking about mm -hmm. that was published very recently mm -hmm. in um, the International Journal of Sports Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism, um, mm -hmm. as well as some other resources um, that link to this and of course the, uh, the, 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 the episode that we did um, back in February 2017, um, episode 92, which is uh, also very relevant. Um, if people want to follow you on social media, that sort of thing, what's the best way they can find you? Yes, I'm just Shona Halson on Twitter. That's my, that's my socialness. Um, that's all I do. But yeah, I try to post new papers and students work and those kinds of things to, and I'll obviously follow all the good people like yourself to uh, keep up with all the latest happenings. So yeah, Twitter's my, my thing. No, that's great. And um, yeah, and also we'll link to your research gate and so on and so forth. So mm -hmm. Thank you, Shona. I know we're literally Pleasure. on the polar opposite yes. ends of the time zones here. Uh, evening, for yes. you, morning for me. Um, yep. I, that, I'm not sure if there's, there's going to be jet lag with regards to the podcast <laughs> here. <laughs> um, it's going to get confused. Um, but the yeah. listeners uh, and I appreciate all of your um, knowledge and your wealth of experience mm -hmm. and you know, getting this science to practice um, mm -hmm. on, on this um, topic. And um, yep. I look forward to uh, talking to you again at some point. Um, um, Thank you. Another two years' time. <laughs> I know, I know. But that's how interesting, how fluid yeah. the science yeah. is and how this body of knowledge evolves. But I'm, mm. I'm, loving, I'm, loving, uh, I'm loving it all, so it's wonderful. Um, so thank you very much. Um, Excellent. Thank you. Good to chat. For anyone who wants to learn more about this stuff, there's obviously a bunch of other podcasts to include uh shona that we've discussed um and some of the other experts like ben desbrow and john bartlett that i've referred to in today's podcast um if you're interested in uh, performance nutrition uh, professionally we have our own diploma in uh, performance nutrition and also our live events in the uk um, where we have experts uh attending um but over and above that um i hope everyone has a great day and i look forward to speaking to you all very